If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and today we're going to look at two verses, verse 8 and 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Solomon, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Let us pray. Lord, what we know not, teach us, but we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. In your son's name, amen. One of my hobbies that I've been doing these last few months is something I've learned or acquired is, uh, is, is Audible. And what's really cool about this app, and I know some of you guys have it, is that I'm starting to listen to old presidential autobiographies. And some of them are actually uh, recorded by the president themselves, or the former presidents. And it's actually very fascinating, especially the presidents that I've lived through. Um, I'm not that old, but I've lived through enough presidents uh, to kind of have some perspective. I remember certain events uh, that, that took place, and I remember how the president responded at the time. And usually, especially with the with the opportunity of hindsight and, and distance from all that, that has happened in the past, I'm able to see things from a different perspective and even hearing from their perspective changes my initial impression of what they did in the past. Oftentimes there are certain policies and decisions that are made that seemed like the right thing to do at the time, but then over time uh, we see that it is actually not that great. And while at the same time there are things that were very terrible, or at least it's perceived as very terrible, only to later find out that it's actually good for our nation. And it helps me understand our nation, how things change, and how the presidents and their role in changing the culture. Even if I don't agree with all of them, I at least admire the fact that in their minds they did what they thought was best at the time and for future generations. All of their policies, everything that they thought was for them at the moment and as well as future generation. And time is actually the only true test, is true test in terms of examining whether or not a decision that was made in the past is good in the present. But no matter what insight or wisdom that the world have, we understand that there's no way that anyone can predict the future. No one can know definitively how their decisions in the moment affect the future. And it's actually because the future is always so uncertain that Christians need not to panic when things are going on in the world. We need to faithfully live in the moment. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15 reminds us, Come now, you say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend there and engage in business and make profits. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
especially now when we think about our current day climate, how political everything is and, and how those decisions seem to have some sort of lasting impact for generations to come. Christians may even be tempted to think that way, to be worried and be bogged down by the things that they hear and the things that the, politics, uh, the politicians and decisions that they're making. But in reality, we know that only God is in absolute control. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. So don't spend your time worrying about, about uh, your life. Don't worry about the things in this world, but rather resolve your life to trusting in Jesus Christ. And the context of this book is about how Everything is vain. This is a pattern of this book, that life is completely meaningless without God. Life is completely pointless without the Lord. In every area of our lives, whether it is something small to something great, every existence, every corner of your existence, every facet of your reality is completely empty without God. And due to sin, we can't make sense of anything in life without the Lord. Solomon, in this book, and so far what we've covered, he touches on every aspect of life, and he's showing us that life is meaningless. He tries to prove this point throughout this book. All existence is an endless cycle, because the same thing happens over and over again. Nothing new is under the sun. In chapter 1, verse 12, we see that, and then he speaks of all the pleasures that there are in the world, whether it is knowledge, chapter 1, verse 13 to 18, or pleasure, chapter 2, or work, uh, in chapter 2, verse 18 to 20. He speaks of the existence of life in chapter 3, how everything in life has a season, and everything will reach to its extreme, and that's just the way life is. In the end of chapter 3, he speaks of the reality of death, that everyone dies. Chapter 4, he speaks of how life can be terrible and it could be a very difficult place to live, but it is tolerable when you have other people in your life. Chapter 5, when I spoke and I preached on this few uh, months ago, uh, it speaks about the, the necessity of worshiping the Lord to worship him and we need to take into we have to, be, we have to take worship seriously we need to approach the lord with reverence now in this short section these two verses here solomon takes like this little intermission to speak about the rulers of the world politics and politicians can be very frustrating both sides, whatever, whatever end of the political spectrum you're in, often looks to the other side and sees them as being irrational and illogical. And sometimes the decisions that even these politicians make, they don't live up to. And we see their hypocrisy and their shortcomings. And what's worse is that their policies often impact us on a day-to-day basis. And Solomon, he, he, he's able to see and speak to this. Remember, he is a king. He knows how other kings were. He had a thousand wives and all these political connections with everyone and other nations. And he knows this is exactly how the world is. He knows, of course, this is how the world's going to look like. Things are going to be difficult in a fallen world. These divinely inspired words by Solomon gives us an observation about how all government works in all time. 
He paints an accurate picture of fallen leaders in a fallen world. It is easy to look at politicians and think that they are some sort of savior in our life. And Solomon is saying that, no, even though he is a king, he doesn't believe that himself. Even though he is, one of the, he is the wisest king and he doesn't believe that you can place your trust in an earthly king. One of our pastors and elders, Bill Yim, said it this way, good politics are not good enough. When he said that, I just wrote that in my notes, like this is wisdom right here. Solomon wants to give his listeners clarity on who these leaders are. And my hope today is to do just that. I'm going to propose four questions about the government and politics in general that's supposed to give us a reality, a clear picture of what they are, and then give, it, and give us biblical response to it. I'll say up front, the most politically incorrect thing that you can do in our day and age is to live for the glory of God. The most politically incorrect thing that you can do now in a highly political age is to worship the one true high God, the most high there was a time where being a Christian seemed like it was a politically correct thing to do, and I think there are seasons where it is like that, and there are other seasons where it's not. But no matter what season we're in, we must always trust God and trust His Word. The most politically incorrect thing that you need to do is to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So now I'm going to propose four questions, and I'll give us a biblical response to each one. The first question is this. What does political corruption look like? What does political corruption look like? Look at the beginning of verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. So he starts by saying this, that if you see this, that means that there's probably, there might be things that they get away with, but when you see it, if you see this happen, that means that this is what's going to happen. Like you're going to see these things uh, play out. That the, the Solomon is clear that leaders are going to do this. It's just a matter of time when you see it. A corrupted leader is someone that is in their position and use their position and power for their own personal gain. And generally, leaders are supposed to serve the people. Their job as a ruler is supposed to serve the people. It's supposed to make life better for those that are under his rule. But what happens when they don't? What happens when they choose to use a position for their own gain? We call that corruption. Solomon shows that there are two areas in which people, or which leaders uh, can do that. And first is oppression of the poor. They oppress the poor. This word oppress is used to describe as, a vi- as, as like violating someone. Uh, this is a picture that of a, as, as a ruler physically violating or exploiting an individual when they cannot defend themselves. And the poor here, and don't think poor in terms of the U.S. definition of poor. U.S. definition of poor is like, okay, there's, uh, you may be low income. That's not really the poor, because there are a lot of places um, now, and relative to back then, it's, it's, it's actually in Solomon's times, way worse. You know, there was like no help for them back then. Uh, there was no social security. There was no uh, food banks. There wasn't any of those back in Solomon's time. The poor back then were people that had no help. They were destitute. And we understand that these corrupt leaders are actively trying to destroy their life, and they do it, and they do so without any repercussion. And now, understand, Solomon is speaking here 
in a way from his own personal experience, and even his own lifetime, or his, the birth of his, his own life, because he understands his own parents. He knows the story of, of his father and mother. Remember David and Bathsheba. Uh, David was supposed to go to war. He was supposed to do his duty as a king. But instead he saw Bathsheba from a distance and he lusted after her. And he sent soldiers to her and tells the, and tell Bathsheba, hey, the king wants to meet you. Now, oftentimes when we read that narrative, we think, oh, it was all Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's fault because she was taking a shower outdoors. How immodest. But understand, she was under the king's rule, and when soldiers come, she didn't know what to do. She just submitted to him, and she had no other person to go to because the king is supposed to be the one that you're supposed to uh, submit to and tell the problems to. And if the king is saying, okay, you need to do this, you either die or you, or you go with him, then Bathsheba had no other choice. She couldn't find a way to defend herself when, uh, against what the king wanted. And as a result of that, she became pregnant, and David schemes uh, a way to kill Bathsheba's husband, and we know the rest of the story. Solomon understands that his parents, or particularly his dad, is someone that oppressed the poor in that way. He leveraged his own authority for his own selfish gain. Solomon may have even thought that, oh, I'm never going to follow my father's footsteps. I'm going to be faithful, a good king. But we know that's not the case. We know that in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon ends up compromising even far worse than his father had ever had. In fact, his sin is what split the nation in half. Whereas David, his sin just split a family. But Solomon's sin split a nation in half. Solomon knows that all leaders are capable of oppressing the poor. One of, my, one of the books I've read recently, or uh, kind of was thinking about recently, was this book called Animal Farm by George Orwell. And you're familiar with that story. It's these little animals that had an uprising against the, their farmer, these human farmers. And it was very weird because I have these animals talk and just, just ignore that for a second. And just, just for the sake of the story, these animals rise up. And as the animals first felt liberated from the farmers, uh, they, find, they found that the pigs eventually took over. They became the dominating figure. And then there was a a law that they put that all animals are equal and over time the pigs became more and more corrupt. And eventually they just changed that line to this, that all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others. We see that that's what happens when leaders are given too much power. Eventually they will be corrupted. Or the rules uh, or those rulers may act completely against um, or although some rulers may act and oppress the poor, this must not be for the Christian. The Christian must not act this way. Christians must be the most compassionate toward those that are weak and destitute. Uh, the corrupt leaders act, uh, uh, lacks compassion, or even if they do things that, are, uh, that seemingly are compassion, they only do it for political points. Or you often see celebrities or politicians whenever they do something, there's always some sort of camera crew and, and like they put in their social media or Instagram or whatever. It's always for them to, to, to have people to like them more. But as Christians, we don't do those things. We don't do things for the recognition of people. We don't do it for the praise of men. Rather, we do it to serve the Lord. We want other people to see the goodness and the love of our God. And Jesus said it's better to give than it is to receive. So, the first way that the, a corrupt leader uh, is corrupted is in their, in their oppression of the poor. The second is the denial of justice and righteousness. 
difference between this and the oppression of the poor is that an oppression of the poor is something that you actively do to them, or it's denial is something that you take away from them. This word justice is basically a legal decision. It's written in the law, something that's written in the law and, and is either denied, neglected, or intentionally misplaced based on the desire of the king. It would be like if a king in, one, in, in a court case decides to rule in one particular way on one particular person, and when another one comes in, which is exactly the same case, and he rules completely differently, that there's an cons- inconsistency in the way that he thinks. That is a sign of a corrupted leader. And the denial of righteousness. This means that it's, it's uh, someone that is not measuring things accurately. In Leviticus 19, verse 36, it talks about how it is a sin for Israel when they don't measure things rightly. That's the same word here for righteousness, that whatever you put on a scale has to be equal and balanced. That is to say that for a ruler to, not, to deny righteousness is to not live uh, in a way that is accurately, that they don't rule accurately. Or either that means that they punish, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, or they punish those that are innocent. And in both cases, they're wrong. So when a person is denied of justice, it's inconsistent in terms of the practice of the law. Whereas the denial of righteousness is that they don't, is that the punishment and the crime does not match up with one another. And Solomon is saying that this is what happens when every corrupt leader rules, that this is the reality of those that rule. They will always not rule in a way that's perfectly just and perfectly right. Now understand our postmodern culture, and, and a culture is all about me and what I believe is right, this is going to require Christians to think deeply and critically about every moral issue. Oftentimes what the state uh, deems as justice or righteousness, it may be in God's eyes as something that's injustice and unrighteous. And the vice and the opposite can be true as well. Justice and righteousness can only be true if it makes sense when there are actual moral absolutes. They're really, they, they are really doing what's right in, our own, in their own eyes. And oftentimes what's right in their own eyes are actually sin and evil in the eyes of God. So what are Christians supposed to do when our leaders are corrupted because of the perversion of justice and their oppression of the poor? What is the Christian's response? Trust God. Trust God and apply God's word into your life. Don't be like those leaders. Don't be motivated the same way that the, the earthly leaders are. If you're doing what is right in God's eyes, it doesn't matter how the world views it. It doesn't... It, 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 the most politically incorrect thing you can do in a world like this is to actually discern what is right and wrong in the eyes of God. To uphold God's standard of right and wrong. Don't oppress or take advantage of the poor. Rather, you need to meet the needs of the poor. Uh, you need to define life in biblical terms instead of compromising in the way that the world defines life. You need to uphold the biblical sexual morality instead of compromising and giving in to the way the world defines it. You need to love those and forgive those that harm against you, who causes harm against you. You need to honor and respect and submit to those that rule over you because we understand that God is the only one that places ruler in their, in their throne. We understand by doing that, by living godly lives, we will not be getting praise from the world. Rather, we'll be persecuted for it. This is what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 tells us, that godly lives, if we choose to live godly lives in Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. 
So the first question that reveals the real nature of our government is, are they corrupt? And the answer is yes. And what is our response? We don't oppress the poor and we don't deny justice and righteousness to them. Now the next question that reveals more about our government is this, or rather more about how we respond. Our second question, how are we to respond to fallen leaders? How are we to respond to fallen leaders? Look at the, at the middle of chapter 5, verse 8. It says, do not be shocked at the sight. Do not be startled. Do not be amazed by it. Don't be surprised that political leaders are corrupt. When you see this happen, don't be surprised. Solomon's saying, don't be shocked, as if you're going to expect something differently. If anything, if there are leaders that rule perfectly and justly and don't oppress the poor, that's something that you need to be shocked by. If you see something that's consistent in character and always honest and, and always desiring the best for other people, that's what you should be shocked by. Don't be shocked by the fact that they are corrupted. And what is strange to me is that people... They're the same people that uh, vote people in are surprised that the politicians that they voted in do not live up to their expectation. Well, of course they're not going to. They're fallen individuals. Sin is in all of us. And when sinful people elect other sinful people, they're going to act sinfully. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised when sinners appoint other sinners into office and then they sin. Don't be disappointed or shocked, but, ha- but in reality, we need to have a low expectation of our leaders. We want to honor them, but don't, don't put, them, put them in the right place in your mind and your hearts, but don't have such high expectations for them, because they are fallen just like us. What are we supposed to do if we aren't supposed to be shocked? Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear at their conduct, but fear and trust in the Lord. Don't be shocked by the fact that they act this way. In fact, do what the Bible tells you to. And that is to pray for them, honor them, and submit to them. Remember, I just, in, the, in our pastoral prayer, I read from First Peter. You have to understand, again, this is a familiar story to us, but imagine if you were a Christian at that time. Christians were under Nero. Imagine what it's like to be under his rule. Nero has this fascination for fires. He, he just loves to ignite people on fire and ignite things on fire. He would often use Christians as little heat lamps in his pool parties. Nero, out of his own greed, wanted to burn down a wall uh, so that he can make this, so he could destroy a wall and make a garden out of, a, of the other side. He wanted to do all this, but he underestimated the fire and ended up burning most of Rome down. And when the people who were in burning rage after seeing all things burned down, they wanted an answer. Who did this? And Nero said, oh, the Christians did it. Look, man, I was on your side. I was already burning them already. Look what they tried to do. This is their way of, of acting against us by burning your homes down. Now imagine you being a Christian at a time. You're actually innocent. There, uh, these, these leaders are corrupted. The whole world is against you. And what are you supposed to do? And Peter tells him, submit. Submit to them. Honor them. Peter tells the Christians to honor the Lord in the way that they submit to the worldly government. And we are called to obey the government. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, God says that he placed these leaders in their position, even the evil ones. Government is, is known as a, a servant or a minister for God to check evil. And there is no authority that is given to man except by God alone. So don't be shocked, but be sanctified by the government. 
obviously there are going to be laws and mandates that go against scripture and those things we obviously don't do but outside of that we need to learn and humbly submit even if it doesn't make sense to us even though it seems irrational aside from things that are actually against scripture those things we just we should be willing to submit as a way to show us like okay we're we are good citizens that we don't want to fight uh, we don't want to fight battles that aren't even significant Nowadays, we tend to want to think about the application before thinking about the clear commands of Scripture. And there are areas in terms of the application that we need to pray uh, and, and seek Scripture and, and pray for wisdom in these areas. But there are other areas that are obviously very clear. And the right thing to do is not to oppose God's Word, even if those people that are in government are opposing God. Or even if they're opposing your American rights. These things don't matter. What matters most is your submission and your humble submission ultimately to the Lord. Okay, don't be shocked by them. Pray for them, honor them, and submit to them. And this is what Christ expects of us. So first question, what does political corruption look like? They, they oppress the poor, they deny, they deny justice and righteousness. Second question, how are, they to, how are we to react to them, to corruption? We don't be shocked. Third who can check political leaders? The third question that I want us to think about that reveals uh, our current political climates and how we can think about things is, who can check our political leaders? Look at the end of verse 8. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Solomon is saying that corruption goes all the way to the top. So who can check them? Who can stop them? And the answer no one. No one. The leaders have leaders over them that are just as bad as they are. They elect each other in. That's why no leader can really check them. And there's this, and and because there's always some sort of loophole. There's always ways in which people can cover things up, because they're doing this for each other, protecting themselves. They choose people that are like them, and they protect those that are like them. Now, is that fair? No. But does it happen? Yes. Don't assume that the solution is to switch to another government or to have another leader because all leaders are sinful, so nothing that they will do will truly change. It might change for a moment, and they may make certain promises, but the reality is that all leaders are sinners, and they only elect sinners to watch over them, and they elect other people to make sure that they, don't, they get to do whatever they want. You know, in modern time, in recent times, there's just this fascination with Marxism. And people, when I see people talk about this, I don't think they understand the extent and the logical conclusion. Marxism's idea that the world is, is divided in between the oppressor and oppressed class, and eventually the only way is for the oppressed class to overthrow the oppressors, and then there's peace. And then people in America think that's the best solution to the problems that we have right now. But I always wondered, how come they don't push it to the, to the logical conclusion? Because eventually the oppressed, the oppressed will become the oppressor, because they're going to have to oppress somebody, they have to rule over somebody, and eventually those that are oppressed are going to overthrow those individuals that are oppressing them, and the cycle is endless. The oppressed will rule, and then, the, and then another group will overthrow them, and then they will rule for a while, and then they will have other people that get tired of them, and then they'll overthrow them, and just this endless and fruitless endeavor. No ruler, no leader or government is going to rule without being corrupted on this planet. 
they, the, the, usually the, the, the oppressed group will say we can do better, but they don't do better. It's just for a season, it just seems that way. Until someone else calls them out and say, hey, you guys are oppressing us because you guys are evil. The solution is never to change the ruler, but it's to change what rules the heart of the ruler. And without Christ, everyone is lost. That's why we need to pray for our leaders, especially those who are obviously against the Lord. The solution is not to vote them out. Those things don't matter. The only thing that matters most is if their heart is changed and things will actually change. Without Christ, everything is lost. All earthly rulers are corrupt because all people are corrupt. Some are more obvious than others, some are more overt than others, and some are more observed than others. But if you do not know what Christ knows about all of us, if you think that the scripture is wrong about the way it describes a human condition, then you will be surprised by it. But the Bible tells us that all men are evil because of their sinful condition. So if no one can check the government, even if they act evil, what are we supposed to do? Trust God. Oftentimes, great disappointments come because there's just a great, too much trust in this, in this one particular area. So don't trust in leaders, their words and their policies, uh, because they will pass and so will their policy. They'll just be like the dust in the wind. But rather trust in God. Even if the ruler is attacking you for your faith, you must trust in God and trust your life to him. Trust him that he will do all things and allow things to happen that's according to his plan. This includes things that goes against the church. If the government goes against the church, we pray for our government. We cannot win in this life. We can't make corrupted leaders not corrupt. Only Jesus can do that. So we pray for them. And in some ways, we need to have some sort of kind and godly compassion for them because they are truly lost without God. I've been read, I was reading a book. I've been reading a lot of books. But there's one particular book that I found particularly interesting because it's, it, it, it chronicles kind of like the history of the Reformed Church. That's kind of what our thinking, our, our leaning is towards, the Reformed thinking and Reformed theology. And this writer made this observation that throughout history, generally speaking, there might be exceptions here and there, but generally speaking, Reformed Christians tend not to engage in public discourse or do anything great for the kingdom of God, except when it comes to politics. Some are super timid and fearful about evangelism, but they, when it comes to politics or their religious rights or taxes or social justice, this is when some, for some reason Christians are on fire for. This is in a sense they're majoring on the things that are minor and minor things on our, that are majors. We should be more on fire for the kingdom of God because every kingdom is going to be destroyed by fire one day. We must be willing to do more than just you know, engage only in times of politics. We must engage the fallen world better with our lives and with sound doctrine. We need to be passionate about things that have eternal significance. So, what do we do? We need to not be shocked by it, by the, by, by the world. And we need to understand that corruption goes all the way to the top, so there's no way that, the, that evil can be checked unless God returns. So, first question, 
what does corruption look like? They oppress the poor. They deny justice and righteousness. How are we to react? We don't. We are not shocked by it. Third question: Who can check our political leaders? The answer is no one. And last question: do, Then do we need the government? Do we need the government? Look at verse nine. After all, a king who cultivates a field is advantage to the land. If it is true that the government is corrupt and there's no one that can keep them in check, it gives very little hope in the government. So why do we need it? Here's the answer. It is better to have government, even though it is bad, than no government. Solomon here in verse 9 indicates that there is some advantage to land when there is a king. Even a bad king is advantage to land because they govern and they rule over it. There's some stability whenever there is a king that rules over the land. Solomon here is simply speaking truth and showing how this is just how the world works. There's always going to be some leader there. And, there's, and because of that, there's always going to be some level of order. We may not like the person, we may not like their thinking, but there's still some sense of order there. Solomon isn't sugarcoating the reality that the government is corrupted. He's just showing that there is some advantage for the people in the land when there is a king. And again, this sounds incredibly uncomfortable for us, especially if, this, if we don't like the, the leaders that, that rule over us. Because some government is better than no government. In a society that plunges into their own selfish sin, um, usually what happens is that God will give them over to their desires. And the result of that is a form of anarchy. And we get a picture of that in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's, there's murder, there's rape, and there's all of these things going wrong in the land, and there is no accountability. And the reason why that is is because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. So when God gives a nation over to some sort of anarchic society, that means it's judgment. When God gives people over to their sin, chaos is absolute. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is far worse and terrifying than any terrible government. Some order is better than no order. So if we need government, even bad ones, how are we to respond? Trust God. Stop placing all your hopes and futures on politicians or politics. Look, Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us that the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. No leader, no decree, no mandate, no law, no legislation, no policy or anything that the world decides to make is outside of the sovereign control of our God. Trust God. He is working it all out for our good and His glory. And there is another reason why I think we need government is this, is that outside of the fact that it gives us advantages in terms of living, even if it's bad, it says, I think it's supposed to point us to something greater. It's supposed to make us think about something beyond this life. Solomon's main point throughout this entire book is to show us that everything on earth is vain without the Lord. So we need to fear the Lord. The fallen governments make you desire for a perfect one that cannot be found in this world, or put your place into, uh, or put your, or put into place, or take out because of what you do in a ballot box. All earthly governments 
is corrupted. And I think this is just an ongoing and constant object lesson on why we need to wait for the perfect reign of Jesus Christ. Terrible governments make us long and make, keeps our eyes up and look full, toward to the heavens and heavenly things. God doesn't want you to be happy here. God doesn't want you to find satisfaction here. God doesn't want you to find meaning here. This is not our home. Life under the sun is going to be terrible, it's going to be difficult, and it is doubly so under evil rulers. And this is designed so that our desires can change. The worldly kings are a means by our heavenly king to long for eternity. Solomon wants us to see how everything in this life is temporal. It must cause you to look to the eternal. Look beyond what is here and now. Look beyond your, the four-year presidential cycles. Look beyond this nation. God's desire for you and I is to have our hope in politics dashed away so that we can look forward to this new heaven and new earth. Job chapter 12 verse 23 says this, He, God, makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them, leads them away. Every day that you turn on the news and you see how bad the world is, it should make you only long for this eternal king, where king rules and this only should remind you of the good news that's found in Jesus Christ. Every time you see our leaders fail morally or live hypocritically, you must be thankful that our eternal king is not like that. Every time we see our leaders deny justice and righteousness, it must cause us to long for the eternal king that will make all things right. Over and over I've said in this, in this passage that the response to the world is to trust in God. I keep stressing this point because I fear that just like the world, when they place their trust in the world, that people in the church are trusting the world instead of trusting the God of the world. The people of the world are going to keep trusting in the earthly system because this is all that they have. Brothers and sisters, this is not our home. This is not all that we have. We have Jesus, and we need to remember our real home and invite others to that great nation. This place, this world, is our mission field. We are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We only represent God, we only represent God but we are not citizens of this nation here. Solomon wrote this and is, and is possessing a great amount of wisdom. This is a guy that has so much wisdom, and he even understands that kingdoms come and go. Even King Solomon needs a perfect king to reign. Let us not waste our breath of a life on the things of this world. Rather, we should use our breath that God has given us to advance the system and kingdom of God in this world. We go and we spread the gospel. We tell people of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us tell others of this great kingdom that is coming, that is waiting for us the moment we enter into eternity. The kingdom that we long for is the eternal king that is ruled by an eternal God. And he invites all those to enter him. The only way to do, the, to do that is you enter through Jesus Christ. Enter to his kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. Trust 
in his perfect nature, not human nature. Trust in his righteousness, not your own righteousness or righteousness of other people. Trust in his good works and not in the good works of fallen individuals. Trust in his atoning sacrifice and not the things of this world. Trust in God and you will enter into this perfect kingdom where there is no injustice and there is no oppression of the poor and we will only be shocked because of how good God is. And there won't be anyone that needs to keep God accountable because God is the holy God and nothing and every, nothing that he does will go against his character. Everything he does will align with his character. And we will have advantage knowing that this king, when he reigns, that everything is going to be made right again. Creation groans and longs for the return of our king. And so should we as believers in Jesus Christ.